you seem to be suggesting you seem to be suggesting there though Stuart that you know it was pretty okay to do it I mean a bit edgy but ah, yeah you could justify it I mean it got you headlines well look we were famous for getting headlines they were cheap but it was nothing sacred nothing was sacred and that was remember you, Sean you're looking now at what was then and that is always a dangerous thing If there's one name that's been synonymous with gambling in Ireland, it's that of Stuart Kenny, founder and former managing director of Paddy Power Bookmakers, now part of the Flutter conglomerate, which describes itself as the global sports betting, gaming and entertainment provider for over 18 million customers worldwide. Stuart Kenny, you're very welcome to Insights with Sean O'Rourke. Stuart, it's hard to believe that it's over 20 years now since you stepped down as Managing Director. That was in 2001. And then you left altogether as the Director of Paddy Power in 2016. Since then, of course, we know that you've been highlighting the dangers of gambling, the downsides, and you've also got several other strings to your bow, mainly psychotherapist and counsellor. Now, our timing in one sense couldn't be better because, you know, very recently there was that ESRI survey suggesting that 130,000 adults have a gambling problem in this country, way more than was previously uh, acknowledged but before we come to that I want to take you back to a time that you and I used to regularly sit in studio and you'd be outlining the latest Red Sea Paddy Power political opinion poll and you very kindly gave us first bite at them on the news at one or today SOR uh, the state of the parties and some fun stuff too Uh, you made a pretty good fist I think of being a a political pundit Uh, but now I suppose from the um, lofty heights of uh, Mount Hindsight I'm thinking I was a bit of a bit player in the creation of a gambling monster. Well, uh, Sean, um, a gambling monster, yes, I can see where you're coming from, but I do want to say I still gamble, especially on politics, and I love it. Joe Biden in 2020 was my biggest win ever. I'm not going to tell you how much it was, but it was an obnoxious amount of money. When did you put on the bet for that? I was putting it on from about two-thirds way through the primaries. If you remember, he came from behind. It was the second one, I think, New Hampshire, where he showed his metal. And, and the best odds at what time were what? Well, you could have got four or five to one at one stage, but I wasn't that cute. So I think the best odds I got was two to one. Then I was betting on him at two to one, seven to four, six to four, five to four. And now I have a brilliant advisor who advised Paddy Power, uh, Jim Nolan, who is probably, in my view, the best political judge of anybody in Ireland. And I'm not going to make exceptions in my view. If you want to know the political odds, he's the man. And he was active on the ground, was he, with one of the political parties? Yes, he was active in what is now Dublin North East for Fine Gael. And he could judge, better than an opinion poll, he could judge the way it was going. After he'd know the houses to call, he just knew the way it... uh, But he was also... Sorry, was. He is, uh, because I still speak to him, I spoke to him only yesterday, on... American political betting he is absolutely brilliant has a good sauce in English political betting but Irish political betting there is no better Has he got rich from it? I have <laughs> <laughs> 
you're obviously very careful to keep confidential whatever conversations you have with people. But just going back to th- those uh, Red Sea opinion polls, I mean, they were obviously a marketing tool. I mean, there was very good, solid, reliable, hard information in them. And that was the basis of our conversations. And then... Presumably, the, the company, based on the advice that you got from, from Jim Nolan in setting the odds for so many TDs, who's going to form governments? I mean, was it a pretty lucrative business for Paddy Power, that side of the betting? No, it was more marketing than lucrative because very early on, the first day I started as a bookmaker, I think I was 22, in my shop in Wexford Street, which is now, I think, a burger bar. I bet on Nixon resigning from the White House. And what it taught me was, and I got front page of the Evening Herald and Evening Press, that if you can bring betting from the racing pages, because only 10% of the people are interested in racing, it's way overstated, uh, the amount of people interested in racing, 100% of people who read papers read the front page. So if you can get betting odds onto the front page, you then become a recognised brand name. And that was always, whether it was betting on who shot JR, army deafness, it, I remember the, the army deafness things, all those well, sort of things. What was the bet there, remind us? As to what they might sue for next. And then uh, PD4 uh, uh, said they were going to pick at our shops. We ran it for about two days and it was uh, young, I refer to him as young Paddy Power who came up with the idea. Uh, we ran it for about two days, did numerous interviews and uh, shouting matches with PD4 on the radio. And then we realised that quite a lot of army people bet in our shops so we made a contribution to PD4 and wrapped it up we got the two days publicity and that's what it was all about Yeah, but being uh, relevant yeah relevant and, and also you know attention drawing and attention seeking now and they were kind of justifiably cheeky bets yeah. but there were other ones that were questionable I mean I'm thinking say of the uh, OJ Simpson uh, case would he get off and then there was the other one probably the most notorious of them all would Oscar Pistorius walk he was a South African uh, athlete who'd lost his legs from the knee down he killed his girlfriend and he was tried for murder and you ran these odds would Oscar Pistorius walk I mean clearly you didn't have a bad taste committee in your boardroom nobody would accuse me of having good taste you want to land on the edge if you go over the edge, you get destroyed. You couldn't do it now. Ah, but how? I mean, like, did it cross your mind at all to consider the offence and, and the hurt that an ad like that would cause to people with what? disabilities, not to mention the, the Steenkamp family, Reva Steenkamp's mother and, and, and family? Uh, of course it was in bad taste. We thought people would be upset that who who had... had uh, bad injuries or lost our legs or handicapped in one way. In fact, it was the start of us realising that the whiff of change was coming, political correctness was coming in and that, it, in fact, the real offence came from women who felt somebody's been murdered. You couldn't do it now. Those were different times. But, but you seem to be suggesting, you seem to be suggesting there though, Stuart, that, you know, it was pretty OK to do it. I mean, a bit edgy, but ah, yeah, you could justify it. I mean, it got your headlines. Well, look, we were famous for getting headlines. They were cheap. But was nothing sacred? Nothing was sacred. And that was... Remember, Sean, you're looking now at what was then. And that is always a dangerous thing. The Reva Steenkamp was a murder of a young woman. And it was an appalling act. And, I mean, now even, do you you regret doing it? Come on, hold on, Sean. Did you run... Were you, you were running SOR at that stage, weren't you, on, on radio? Yes. Did you speculate on whether Oscar Pistorius would get 
on or off. We covered the trial in the normal yeah. way. Yeah, you covered the trial. <laughs> you you actually you, well, got people to speculate. Well, I think he might be guilty. He might be innocent. All we did was put odds on what you were speculating on. You, you, but, you, but we were covering a, a, a genuine news story and giving it coverage and we spoke to people regularly about mm. that trial and, you know, the ebbs and flow of it. And we weren't subject to the rules that would apply if it was a trial in Ireland because we could we could speculate because, you know, it was mm. a foreign situation. But, I mean, you know, it, it was done with ordinary decency. I mean, there was no question of trying to make a joke out of it. Well... Uh, <laughs> The, not to not let alone make money or see it as a way of drawing attention uh, sorry, to the programme. The, sorry, were there ads in the middle of your programme? Of course there were, yeah. Yeah, the either side of the Oscar story. So you were making money out of Oscar but, stories as trial as well. No, not we, you no, personally, no, but RT were. Well, look, I, we could, we could we start could shouting down. at each other about that and maybe we should just leave it. But anyway, uh, because we, we've kind of covered it. But I'm wondering then, you know, at what stage, were you, were you captivated by bookmaking from a fairly young age? Yes, I was. I was a kid with asthma, uh, very bad asthma. And my dad asked his friends in the King's Inns, I think he was a high court judge at the time, how can I get fresh air for my son? Because I couldn't exercise. And they said, oh, bring him racing. It's a wonderful sport. So I went and I saw Terry Rogers and Sean Graham and everybody around them. They were shouting the odds. And I thought, I want to be important like them. From then, I was hooked hook, line and sinker. I went to Glenstall, became the school bookie in Glenstall. When the Leaving Cert papers were stolen that year and they had to put the English paper was put on the front page of the Independent and it was put on to Derby Saturday, postponed it, put on to Derby Saturday. This is the repeat exam? The repeat exam and there were two exams for honours and one exam for pass. So I switched from honours to pass so I could be there to take the, the bets on the Derby and Lo and behold, Leicester was beaten. He was in second place. I clean sweep. What kind of money would you have been making then as a, a senior schoolboy? Uh, probably 25 points, maybe, or something like that. That's good enough money now in, the, in those days. And oh, what, yeah. the late maybe, 60s, maybe that's a uh Maybe 10, 15, but it was good money. Yeah, and yeah. It, it can't have been easy for you because, I mean, you know, Glenstall, a boring school in a fairly remote area. How did you actually manage to put on the bets? Or were you were you the bookmaker? Oh, I was the bookmaker. I was taking the bets. And offering odds at yeah. you know, the starting price yeah. or whatever would be uh, the SP. So, and, and so it went on from there then, yeah? Yeah. And then I went, and my leaving cert was pretty poor. You know, in those days, you only needed two honours to get into university. I've was some miracle uh, scraped by. In fact, I have a record uh, of I'm the only person to have failed past classical Greek two years in a row on the Leaving Cert. I believe I've, that is unique. Hardly anybody ever took the exam. I don't know if they even the, knew the it. The famous Christopher Dillon was probably your teacher, was he? Um, um, he, he but for, for one part, yes. <laughs> I was his biggest failure. Um, <laughs> he would have been He would have been a nephew, I think, of James Dillon, the uh, yeah. Fine Gael politician yeah. uh, of, of some renown. And John Dillon, who was in the yeah. House of Commons at the time of the Rising and so forth. But anyway, that's just a, a detail. Um, so then, what, UCD and Commerce? Uh, UCD and Commerce. I was made racing correspondent for the UCD magazine at the time instead and I got a press badge 
in those days you were they'll not only the press badge let you in but it, uh, you could have your lunch and a few drinks there so it was absolute uh, a beano time I never attended any lectures after two years I think I got the first year and the second uh, having done it twice and you needed influence to fail commerce in those days it was a dummies degree I went off to Ladbrokes and became a shop manager in Ladbrokes where? Wardour Street in Soho which was absolutely magnificent because you saw all all human life you know all the pimps and everything were going in gambling in thousands there even in thousands in those days and it was just magnificent It sounds almost as interesting as being a, a tabloid journalist <laughs> would have been in those <laughs> days I mean you literally met uh, all human life All human life and it was magnificent and and what were the kind of bets or kind of stories that you would have come across in those years? I mean, with your eyes wide open. You saw, you saw the wonderful multiculturalism of London in those days. Dublin was all white. I know that because my late wife, Ruth, who was the the finest human I ever met in my life. Now, we separated, unfortunately, as much due to my lunacy as hers, but she was black, she was Nigerian. I remember when we'd bring down the kids to, you know, the West. This is going back 40 years ago. People would be with their mouths open. They, they, they'd seen it on television. And it wasn't racism. It, it was just kind of, we haven't seen this before. Seeing the wonderful multiculturalism in, um, uh, in, in London, it just opened my eyes. It was exotic. It was wonderful. So you came back to Dublin or back to Ireland after how many years there? About two and a half years. And what, set up your own business? And worked for an Irish bookie for a little bit and then set up my own business in Wexford Street and a tie. What were you called? Stuart Kenny. And And on the first day uh, I opened the shop, I was betting on Nixon to resign from the White House. And nobody was doing it at the time. Terry Rogers had done Irish elections, but nobody was doing American stuff. And that got publicity, and as I say, the Evening Herald, the Evening Press, but in numerous other uh, publications. And I then thought this is, uh, you know, uh, a great way of, number one, it was helping my ego, getting your name in the paper. But number two, it, it was getting your business known. And how quickly then or how rapidly were you able to expand? Because it was all bookmaker shops in those days. I built up about three or four shops. Then I joined in with two others and uh, with Jimmy Mangan, a wonderful individual, and Vincent O'Reilly to form Kenny O'Reilly. We sold to Corals. We were the first people to get real big dough. And we sold to them on a Friday and I'd opened up again on the Monday. We had a few shops in the locker. Then... Two or three years later, John Corcoran, the most inspirational businessman I ever met and a wonderful human being who... He was into property, was he? He was green property. Blanchetown Shopping Centre, Northside Shopping Centre. Thought so long term. Ten years was short term in his book. He came to me and said, look, let's found an Irish betting group. We'll show uh, the British multiples how you run a betting train. It was hard in the first two years. In fact, we tried to sell it, but we didn't realise the British chain we were trying to sell it. We were trying to sell theirs to us at the same time. So after two meetings, we gave up. Gave up. John inspired me into really long-term thinking. He was a wonderful, wonderful long-term thinker. I remember coming to him once with a seven-year plan. He said, Kenny, you, you, you plan much too short-term. 20 years. Plan for your grandchildren. That's the way to run a business. And did you? 
we ran Paddy Power in that way. So we brought Paddy Power. In those days, it was only working class areas that uh, had betting shops. You had them near a bus stop and an employment exchange, probably. Then we were the first bookmakers to really break into middle class areas and put it on from the back street to the high street. The further advancement of betting and the uh, normalisation of betting. I have huge regrets. Now one can say I'm, it's well to have hindsight, but I have huge regrets about how far it went, especially with the internet. I, yeah, I, we, I should we, have we, seen it. Arguably mm. you did see it because I was reading Ivan Yates's book, his memoir, and he says that he listened to you from early on, around about the turn of the century, saying that online gambling was where the future lay. You, you visualised guys on their 3G mobile phones having a bet on their internet account several years actually before it became a reality. Yes, that is true. I saw it, it was going to make betting popular. I was much too late to see the mixture of online and gambling and gambling addiction would lead to the social problems. It, it, I was much too late. I, I was ahead of most people, but I, I was much, I should have seen it earlier. Was I conveniently not seeing it? You could accuse me of that. I'm, I'm not going to argue the toss on that one. Yes, I have huge, huge regrets that I did not do more. I, people can point the finger at me, rightly so. At what stage did your conscience start to get at you about the damage, the social damage, the individual harm that it was doing to individuals? Much too late is the answer. But for three years before I resigned, and I resigned on that issue, uh, this I, was as a director or as MD? A director. For, sorry, two and a half years, I raised uh, every board meeting I raised that they were bored of me. I was only talking to myself in the end. I should have seen it much earlier. And I think because I was front stage on making betting more marketable, I have to take a lot of the blame. But, you know, I'm faced with the thing. I either shut up or speak up. And you can say as well, it's never too late to do the right thing. Yeah. What triggered it was fixed odds betting tournaments in the UK. And we don't have a tradition in Ireland of slot machines in every pub and at every corner. The UK does. And they had slot machines in betting offices and then they brought in fixed odds betting tournaments, which were highly, highly, highly addictive. There's only one more betting product that is more addictive, and that's online slot machines at the moment, which the health authorities in the UK have said has addiction rates akin to heroin. But fixed odds betting terminals brought it into the front page of every UK national, especially the London Times and the Daily Mail. And that brought it to the front page. But I was, and there was one other far-sighted director who kept on saying, Stuart, you're, you're finding the wrong target here. You're shooting at the wrong target. Online is much more dangerous. I missed that, but I did eventually get it. When you were uh, running the show up to 2001, did you get correspondence or complaints from people saying, look, you know, my husband's life or my son's or whatever has been ruined by his addiction to gambling? You should do something about this. It wasn't a subject that... We knew there was people, we thought it was a tiny fraction. We were wrong. I do believe the betting offices, because there was no slot machines, because there was all the restrictions, because there wasn't the easy availability and every uh, minute there was a new race, I don't believe the addiction rates were as high, anywhere near as high. But we missed them. Look, 
we missed it. But did I get letters? No, actually, we didn't get letters. Yeah, but you're, you have a situation, and you've had it as long, I think, as technology <laughs> has helped helped the the, the, the efficiencies, uh, where it's possible for the betting companies, and I don't want to specify it around, you know, one that you worked for yourself, but in general, they can identify people who are winning too much for their liking, and they can put limits on what they can wager. It must be just as easy for them to identify people who are losing. Sean, you're now doing falling in my view into the trap that the bookmakers feel comfortable with this is not about finding an addict after he's done damage this is about curbing products and helping vulnerable people and children from falling into the trap some of the products are too addictive they need to be slowed down they need to be curbed we need to get ahead of the posse, not always chasing the addict. You'll get nowhere chasing an addict. Well, that, that's not necessarily the case. We could, we could debate that, but you obviously have a view and it's based on you know, a lot of experience and so forth. But I'm wondering, you know, is there not, is there not a, an ethical requirement or should there not be to limit what you take in the same way as a publican should limit the amount of drink he or she supplies to a, an course, alcoholic? But of course, and that is one of the duties of care. And that should be done and it should be done a lot more. But first of all, limit the, the product. I'll give you an example. An 18 year old opens an account to have a bet on. And this happens today to have a bet in Ireland for the Rugby World Cup. Within 24 hours, he is bombarded, he or she, and there's a lot of she's in it as well as he's bombarded with free, offer, free spin offers on the online casino. Betting on Ireland to win the World Cup is not an addictive product. The online slot machines in the casino is an addictive product. There is an easy way of solving that one. Number one in the legislation, you cannot offer free bets or free spins or advertise to your sportsbook customers the highly addictive online casino and you make a break between, you can move between one and the other on the same site. Make the break. There's two easy things that I will be asking to meet the Minister to, to lobby for. Two things that can be done. Not 102, two things. In Australia, they've introduced a really far-sighted, very obvious thing, that Every month, the bookmakers have to send out a statement of how much you gambled and how much you won or lost. Now, look at the consequences. The bookmakers will shy away from it because most people underestimate how much they lost, especially people with addiction problems. So if you do that, people are forced. Now, bookmakers will say you can find that out on the site, but you would need to be, you'd need to be a Einstein on a, on a computer to find it. You, you force everybody. You don't have to open the email, admittedly. So that's one thing you have to be told. You get a, a, the equivalent yeah. of a bank statement. Bank, every financial institution, they're claiming to be a financial institution, every financial institution has to send out monthly statements. Why is betting different. I think it is. And there was another thing you said, you said there was a second thing? Yeah. And the second thing is that they link that you have separate accounts, sportsbook and casino, because the casino is highly addictive. 
Now, I'm not saying that everything in a sports book isn't addictive, but it's highly addictive, the online slot machines and the casino, and that you cannot market from one to the other or send free spins. Before we talk more in, in, in detail about the, the legislation, I just want to go back ever so slightly. You say, you know, if you're looking at if you're looking at the, the, the addict, you know, you've missed the boat, as it were. But you did say in a previous interview, I think it was with Matt Cooper, that uh, Patrick mm. Kennedy, who became um, chief executive, he was uh, very committed to using algorithms to find the, the problem cases and committing to changing things. Now, uh, did that go anywhere? Patrick was totally committed. And he really was prepared to do in 20% of the profits because he saw what could happen. He was an inspirational uh, CEO who I had the great joy of working with for a long, long, long time. And a, a great man and a friend of mine. So um, I, I identify that. It, it didn't because eventually what happens is the rest of management slow processes down because remember... This can't be done easy because this is why governments have to legislate. Asking bookies to do the, the work for them is a cop-out because governments have to legislate because people's bonuses, everybody down the line, their bonuses are affected. You, you do in 20% of the profits, everybody's bonuses is affected. I do believe it's important to spot the addict, but first of all, change the product. Now, it's interesting, the parallel, if you look at cigarettes and op the opioid crisis in uh, America, the Sackler family, who were famous for selling OxyContin, used exactly the same argument. It is not the product is the problem that opioids, they said, weren't the problem. It is the people. And there's one or two percent of people who are weak. And that's all it is. And the, it's a bit like the National Rifle Association says, it's, it's not the taking, guns. Yes, it's not the guns, it's the people. And the bookmakers use that argument. No, it is part of the product. And I know people will say I'm uh, an arch hypocrite, but that I market bookmaking. Yeah. And they're right, they can say that. And yet mm. you go on with the campaign. And Stop Gambling Harm, I think, was the, the title yeah. of the campaign that you and Fintan Drury uh, established. And I think you had four, was it, key requirements or suggestions that there would be more restrictive controls for under 25-year-olds because, yeah. again, their brain isn't the fully developed. The frontal the brain doesn't developed. mature until 25 or 26. Uh, mandatory deposit limits for everyone with a complete ban on VIP schemes and free bets. Yeah. Mandatory application, you mentioned that, of separate so accounts. Can I go back to the deposit limits a second? Yeah. The reason it should be mandatory, bookmakers say, oh, you got, we've got deposit limits. I put a deposit limit on my account. You would put a deposit. An addict will not put a deposit limit. The very people who need it most don't put them on. So you need to make it mandatory. Yeah. And, and the other one, and this is quite contentious, rigorous controls on advertising around sport and the broadcasting of sport. Now, in the legislation that's mm. going through the doll and, and uh, the, the Oireachtas at the moment, there is this requirement that there would be no advertising of gambling. Is it between the hours? Something uh, very up early. To that, up to nine o'clock. From 5.30 in the morning, yeah. I think, till, till, till the water shed of, of nine o'clock. Now, uh, there are people like uh, Noel Mead, I think, saying this could be the ruination of racing. He's a famous trainer because, again, there are two dedicated racing channels. Don't get me on this subject because it'll be a rant, but, 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 but I'll, I'll give you my view on that one. The racing industry gets, and I've never understood why, the most cosseted, wealthy industry uh, in Ireland. Most of the prize money is going to Arab oil sheiks and tax exiles. And they are expecting the government give them 70 million a year 
Now, in my view, you don't give that to yacht owners and they will say all the employment and everything like that. Well, but absolutely. it should be it should be self financing. You know, it's a wealthy sport with incredibly some of the wealthiest people in the world are horse owners. And a lot Maybe of mobile just, re- assets as well. Yeah. So the idea that the vulnerable should have to suffer so that the racing uh, can have a, a more prize money, I think is ridiculous. Yeah, but that's a separate issue. And, that's about and, the subsidy. And the minister rightly said, and I was really impressed with his uh, interview, uh, you know, uh, rightly said, when they agreed the deal for the, uh, racing... This is Horse Racing Ireland. Uh, yeah. When they agreed it, they knew the legislation. They could have put safeguards in to, uh, to protect themselves and that. They didn't. They knew it and now they're whining. I'm sorry, I, I, I don't buy that argument at all. Uh, to quote Noel Mead in the Irish field uh, in an interview, he says, if this came to fruition, it would be an absolute disaster for Irish racing. It really would. The damage this would do to the industry is unthinkable. I honestly believe, I cannot honestly believe that a government would allow this to happen. I know many people are up in arms about this. Look, I'm a marketing man. Noel has done a very good marketing job there. I used to say it, remember how often I went on your programme and said if the tax isn't reduced from 2% to 1%, every bookie in the country will be closed. They were still flourishing afterwards. These things happen. The, the racing will still flourish. It is part of Irish culture. It will still flourish. But it's it's not just Noel <clears throat> Mead. I mean, you get um, Eddie O'Leary, the manager of Gigginstown uh, House Stud. He says the loss in exposure for Irish racing's participant would be highly damaging. Make no mistake, if the bill is implemented in its current format, then we're facing a massive step in the wrong direction for Irish racing. So we'll throw the vulnerable down the toilet. So so Irish racing, they're getting seventy million from the Irish government as it stands, it will not lead to this. They will find a way around it. But don't it's the only small ma- courses, I mean, like I, I often yeah, call it the prettiest little race course they in the would, world, they Ballon will just take, They will uh, just take the ads off for Ireland. It, it, technology now, there won't be a problem. This is way over-exaggerated. This is way, way, uh, this is scaremongering. Are you are you satisfied though that the legislation clearly you're, you're impressed by the Minister, uh, Mr Brown? It was an interesting thing. In the ESRI report, the SRI report absolutely astounded me. But one of the things, 71% of the population of Ireland have a negative view of gambling. Now, when you and I were talking about politics 20 years ago or and 10 years ago, that stat was way under that. 71%. That shows that the minister is actually doing something that the public will back. There's also the other side of this thing. I mean, and again, it's become, uh, you know, front and central about the whole idea of, you know, ethical investment. I mean, it has to do with climate change, all sorts of things as well. And, you know, there are there are big pension funds. They're looking around for opportunities, obviously, to invest their their assets. Um, I presume, you know, the companies like the one you built up would have had a certain amount of that. And you'd want to keep it as well. But you've got to make sure that, you know, you run a clean shop, as it were. Well, as long as it looks clean, you know, I'm, I'm always slightly cynical about it. I mean, there is still bundles of institutions that invest in cigarettes. Um, the Sacklers were backed by institutions. I'm sure they'll find it. I don't think it'll affect uh, the investment. Now, I, I would like to stress here, I am not anti-gambling. I love gambling. I gamble myself a lot. 
but the way it is set up of sucking people into the highly addictive online casino I was very relaxed about my children neither of whom really bet much opening an online account I wouldn't want my grandchildren to open an online account as long as they are sucking people into the highly addictive online casino and yes it is hypocrisy I was there when it was being done I, I, that's a matter for I'll have to live with James Brown was making the point as well. We had, there was a big kerfuffle. I remember we were covering it at the time. I think it was Michael Lowry, the independent TD, as he now is for Tipperary, yeah. wanted to bring in a casino and set it up there. And, and James Brown said, look, every kid in the country is walking around with a casino in his or her back pocket at this stage. Well, that is true. But look, we can't make it too restrictive. We don't want to set up an opportunity for the mafia. There are criminals to get in. And if you make things too restrictive, then it becomes a black market. Now, it's way over-exaggerated. I used to always use black market as when I would be threatening the minister, if you don't bring the tax down, it'll all be in the Isle of Man. And I got on planes to the Isle of Man. And the papers took pictures of me with a bookie satchel getting on the planes. So you don't want to make it too restrictive. You want people to be able to bet and have fun. But there are parts of the product that need to be slowed down, to be neutered, to be ring-fenced, and part of the enticements need uh, to be stopped. If I recall rightly from reading that legislation, there's going to be, I think, is it a seven-member authority um, to to run this this, this, uh, new arrangement? And I think they're going to be chosen um, at least three men and at least three women uh, after public competition. Could you see yourself applying for one of those? No. Sure, I'm an old fella. <laughs> I'll be seventy-two soon. I want to cycle up. The, I want to cycle up the hills of Barra and cycle every hill in Ireland. I, I've no, no number one. It, but, 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 but it's not fair because I'm part of a lobby group that should not. You know, you shouldn't have bookmakers. You shouldn't have people who've made a stand. These people have to be neutral. Okay, but knowledgeable as well. Knowledgeable. I, I mean, if I can be of help, but, you know, but I, I, no, I am not applying. And I, even if I was offered it, which I won't be, uh, I wouldn't take it. There's one element of bookmaking that um, people would be interested in. I mean, it wouldn't come as a surprise to them because it's been said in court and it's been said in various cases that it can be used for money laundering. Well, what's your experience of that? That is true. And in Paddy Power, we always did our legal duty. So much so that I've given evidence in court and in the case, Cab asked me to give evidence, demanded I gave evidence um, concerning Jessbrook, where John Gilligan made his money and I gave evidence, which was my legal duty. So it is undoubtedly true. I don't think it is a, a concern now. I think in fairness to the uh, bookmakers, and as I've said before, many of them are, are still my good friends. We have a difference of opinion, but they're, they're my good friends. They have kept their nose very clean on that. And they are, if they put the same energy into rooting out addicts as they do rooting out laundering money, we mightn't have some of the problems. Of course, there are legal obligations now there, uh, Stuart, that mightn't have been there always to report suspicious transaction. That applies to all financial institutions, yeah. bookmakers too? Yes, yes. And if, if you, you have to report if you believe uh, a criminal is using uh, your facilities to launder money. How did it come about? I mean, that, that uh, you ended up going to court to give evidence against John Gilligan. That must have been a daunting prospect. It was, but number one, it was my legal duty. And number two, it would be unfair. The boss has to take, 
has to carry the can. It would be unfair, as one of the other bookmakers did, of sending in a junior to give evidence. It was my duty. I was one of the founders of the firm. I had to do that. You mentioned something there that you do cycling and so forth. Now, the new life that you took on was psychotherapy uh, after you gave up running Paddy Power. Tell me about that. After I gave up, I had ambitions at the age of 50 that I would retire, go to Tibet and change career. So I had always been interested in psychotherapy. I'd been in counselling myself and needed and still needed. I applied I was turned down because I wasn't ready for the course. But eventually I did a three or four year course in Dublin Counselling and Therapy Centre. And I remember the first day, it was funny, there were 20 of us around a circle and everybody had to introduce themselves, you know, in these courses. And it would be, I'm Sean, I'm a, I'm a nurse. I'm Mary, I'm a nurse. I'm so-and-so, I'm care worker. And then it was, I'm Stuart, I'm a bookie. And the places erupted in, in laughter. When I qualified as a psychotherapist, <clears throat> My first client, God help her, uh, because I was so nervous, you, you know, rather than listening, you're thinking of what you should say. In fact, you should say nothing. And my second client walks in and says, I'm a compulsive gambler. I nearly fell off the seat. He only lasted one. I had to identify. I was still on the board of Paddy Power uh, of what, uh, what I was. Would you not be the very man, the ideal person to counsel compulsive gamblers? No. No, dude. Counseling, you cannot bring counseling. I might be the ideal man to coach, but counseling, you cannot bring yourself in in that way. And I, my, I would skip skip ahead in the story, thinking unconsciously skip ahead in the story too often, thinking I knew the next line, and that isn't. You're there to hear, to build a relationship, to hear, and to, to walk in their shoes. And not to judge, non-judgmental. So, do you key. do you actually rule out <clears throat> people with that gambling problem then? As, as I don't. As clients? Number one, there's much better people qualified than me. There's Colin O'Gara, uh, Professor Colin O'Gara. There's Barry Grant um, of Intern Problem Gambling. There, uh, Tony O'Reilly of Tony Ten. Um, I, I don't practice psychotherapy any longer. I actually coach ADHD now. That's a, a shift into an area that you have a lot of familiarity with. Yeah, I have ADHD as anybody who would know me and God love my partners over the years. They've had to deal with my ADHD. When and how were you diagnosed, mm. Stuart? Professor Michael Fitzgerald, who is regarded in his day as a world uh, expert on things like ADHD, I was going to counselling for him, it was a guy with him, and he, after about a year and a half, he said, have you ever considered ADHD? And I didn't even know what it was. I said, what's that? And he described it, and he might as well have been describing me. Now, I have got it mild, so there are more pluses in ADHD than minuses for me. It gives me unbelievable energy. I want to do novelty. You and certainly it, did that. <laughs> it was part of it, Paddy Power, you even unconsciously you build an organisation in your life in some ways. So that is where danger, I loved danger. And the people I associate with would be, you know, could be dangerous, did all it, sorts of things. Did it make you, <clears throat> uh, does it make you difficult to work with or for? Yes. Even though I am still very, very friendly with everybody I have ever worked with. In fact, I'm very, very friendly with 
the opposition. I, I was very close to the head of Stanley Leisure. I now, up to recently, owned Greyhounds with the best head of that Ladbrokes ever had in Ireland, Pat Flanagan. Uh, Ivan Yates, we get on well, even though we had a love affair for six months and fell out usually for six months. Yeah, he actually credits you, or he names you as one of the people who came to visit him in bad times when he was in in Wales uh, and organising his bankruptcy and so forth. But there was some pretty harsh uh, stuff that went on between you at an earlier stage. I mean, you pulled you pulled a stroke on him the day that Bertie Hearn announced he was resigning as teacher <laughs> candidate of Fianna Fáil. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, well, Ivan described me in his book as awesomely ruthless which probably is true. Um, I think I've probably left that part of me behind, except if somebody crosses me. But usually I just shrug my shoulders and move on. But sometimes I, yeah, in all life, one has to be uh, cold-blooded. But yes, that was great. I was meant to be meeting uh, Mark Hennessy of the, the Irish Times, a wonderful journalist, and... He rang me up at the last second. I was meeting him about the fixed odds betting terminals, actually, because I love, was lobbying against them coming into Ireland. At the last minute, he said, I have to cancel. Bertie's just called an emergency press conference. And that's all I needed to know. And I got on immediately to Ivan, Ye- to Ivan Yates' organisation and um, found out the odds of Bertie to be gone by the end of the year. Filled my boots in that. Then Patrick Kennedy got on, filled his boots. And then about a few weeks later, I rang up to have another bet. I'm told my account is closed. How and much did you How much did you hit I, them for? Not that much money. but Yeah, but much, much earlier, you had something maybe a bit harder to get over. That's when he opened it with Deirdre, his wife, uh, their first betting shop was it in Wicklow. You effectively tried to kill it at birth uh, because they had a few little incentives to get people in. You matched them and maybe outdid them. As I say, trying to kill them off at birth. There were competition you didn't like in the same town. Yeah, he is right. I was awesomely ruthless. Some things I'm not proud of. And now, it doesn't, it's not akin to my regrets over uh, gambling addiction, which I will always have. Some things I wouldn't be proud of. I was awesomely ruthless. Uh, we wanted to prove we were the biggest and we weren't going to, uh, we were going to compete and uh, we fought, and I remember even his political opponent, Charlie McCreevy, ringing me up to see if he could get me to ease up on it. Those times have moved on, but you know, I still talk to Ivan and go out for dinner with him the odd time. Yes, I mean, he's somebody who, you know, he's been, he's had his ups and downs and he's one of the life's great survivors. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, he, he um, I think he just, you know, has a, has a great attitude to setbacks. Otherwise, he wouldn't be doing as well yeah. as he is at his current uh, activities. But look, uh, when you look back, uh, you, you built a, a very successful business. You made a lot of money. You have a lot of regrets. What, what do you intend doing with the rest of your life? Well, I'm coaching people with ADHD. I'm running cycling groups to do with addiction. Did you ever, by the way, did you ever get to Tibet? I did. I spent seven weeks in Tibet. I didn't do seven years in Tibet. I did seven weeks in Tibet. And it was magnificent. I went into Nepal, into Kathmandu, and Kathmandu was wonderful. And I remember going into Kathmandu, down the O'Connell Street of Kathmandu, uh, in a car, and there was a cow asleep in the middle of the road and everybody had to go around it because a cow is sacred. And I thought, God, this is a country that is great. Stuart Kenny, thank you so much for coming in. It's been most interesting talking to you and thank you for joining me on the Inside the Podcast. Thank you, Sean. 
To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.